Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the First Word Podcast from First Showing. My name is Alex, and I'm here with Mike. And we are going to discuss our favorite films, or the the best films, or whatever you want to call it, of 2017. As a good way to introduce all of you to our likes and dislikes and our tastes and sort of more about who we are as film lovers. As a special guest at the end of the episode, we have Alicia Malone, who is one of my favorite film voices in the community. And she's awesome, so she's going to run down her top ten of the year as well at the end of the episode. And we're also going to talk a little bit about 2018, what we're looking forward to um, briefly at the end of the podcast. And then the last thing I want to say is that uh, uh, my my list is not a best film of the year list. It's my favorite films that appeal to me. You know, I'm not the kind of critic who's judging things on this grand scale of is the film the, the best in the, all of film history. I see films that, that if there's something that connects with me and makes me love it, that's the ones that I count as my favorites every year. That's the kind of list I want to put together. So with that said, we shall begin. <laughs> and um, we're going to do our top tens, and I'm going to start, and we're going to go back and forth. So let's begin. My number 10 is a film called Thelma, the latest film from uh, Joachim Trier. One of his first big breakout films was Oslo, August 31st. And then he followed that up with Louder Than Bombs, which was a, 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 a drama about a, a, a mother dying. And um, this year he presented a film called Thelma. And he is a Norwegian director. And the film is set in Norway. And it's about a young woman who moves from her small, rural, tiny town uh, to Oslo, which is the biggest city in the capital of Norway. And there she starts going to a university, and it's basically about a, her sexual awakening as a, a gay woman. She falls for this other woman she meets on campus named Anya, who's played by a musician from Norway. She learns as she's falling for her and as she's beginning to have feelings for her that she has these superpowers. And it's not like overdone. That's what I really love about this film is that it's very subtle superpowers. And she kind of has a telekinesis power to move things. She also has the ability to, to make things happen in very tiny ways. But the film is just this beautifully atmospheric, just moody, but in this really, really, really warm way where you, you're, you're kind of scared by her powers. But that's her point. She's, she's questioning whether her sexual awakening is bringing these powers to light. I just got so lost in it and I got so pulled into the depth of it. And by the end of it, I, I think I literally wrote in my review that I'm like, this is definitely one of the best films of the year. It's really worth a, a watch. I really, really got into it. And I really loved it. I remember seeing the poster, which I thought was really cool, and never followed up on the movie. The poster has like a really a bird over her eyes. And yeah. It's really cool. And by the way, to preface my list a little bit, you may go to a lot of the film festivals and have a, a unique perspective on what people are seeing and maybe the general public doesn't know about. I might call myself a little bit more of a mainstream guy. I mean, I do my best to see every movie I can. I love small, independent films. But since I'm not fully in the business of seeing movies, reviewing movies, being a part of movie news, I don't get as many chances to see those movies. So I actually rely on people like you and Alicia, who we'll talk to later, to tell me about movies that maybe aren't being shown all the time on TV trailers or or being talked about on Twitter. That shouldn't be a downplayer for my list. But I am <laughs> okay. warning people. So in my number 10, Molly's Game. Uh, Molly's Game, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it or trying to place it, is Aaron Sorkin's movie about uh, uh, the poker princess 
played by Jessica Chastain. I'm kind of a sucker for true stories, and I think you'll probably find that with my list. I'm also familiar with this story, so I came into it with an anticipation, and it fulfilled it. I've always liked Aaron Sorkin's writing. I think it's just so much fun to be in a theater or to be watching a show where the the dialogue is moving faster than your brain can sometimes even comprehend it. And it's so unique to him. Already a leg up, but the Molly Bloom story is so fascinating. And she run, she ran this underground poker game skirted with what was legal and what was not. Michael Sarah has a great role as Player X, as they call it. Um, a lot of people have figured out from the book that was written about this story that that was actually Tobey Maguire. Kevin Costner plays the dad and gives me a lot of the emotion that this movie needed. You know, is is it a perfect film? No. But I, I really grappled with what was my number 10 this year. Um, and I just had to go with Molly's game. Cool. I was kind of mixed on it. I felt like Sorkin isn't yet the best director. This is his debut. Mm-hmm. And he has strong writing, but I prefer The Social Network more, and I prefer um, uh, Steve Jobs more as well. Um, I, I do, I do, I do agree with you that it sort of reminded me of Transcendence when you know, like Wally Pfister tried to go turn his hand onto directing. Yeah, it's almost like when the creatives try to direct, it's never quite as polished as when maybe an actor tries to direct, because I think what they're all focused on are a little bit different things that make a movie great. There are obviously some really wonderful moments in it, um, thanks to his writing. But yeah, it just didn't it just didn't hit me. But no, I don't wanna I don't wanna tarnish your your number ten choice, so I just was saying some of my thoughts about it. <laughs> no, because I guess I just wanted to love it as much as you did and it didn't reach me that way. I yeah. Don't know. No, I, I, I feel you. And I think um I was ready for it to disappoint and it didn't. I also saw it three days ago, so maybe that's why. But, you know, who's to say? So what's your number nine? So my number nine is a film that also played at festivals and doesn't open until 2018. But I saw it three times already, so it's stuck with me and I have to include it. It's uh, You Were Never Really Here. It's the new film from Lynn Ramsey. She directs Joaquin Phoenix in this role as this big, burly, muscle man sort of... um, uh, he, he's like a, a, a war veteran. There's a couple flashbacks in it, but also he's he nowadays his job is basically like a, a thug who gets hired to go rescue young girls who've been sort of taken into the sex trade. And so the film is this sort of weird drive-esque dark thriller where it's not really an action movie. Some of the trailers make it seem like you're going to go watch and beat up all these guys who, who've stolen these young women, but that's not necessarily the case. It's just this really lyrical, poetic drama more than anything that takes you through his life. And you learn a lot about him without him saying anything. You learn a lot about how he's this tortured kid. And and my interpretation of the film is that uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character has now sort of learned that the most he can do is be a brute who goes around and rescues people. And that's his, his way of sort of giving back to the world after seeing so much terribleness that he's experienced in his life. And it has a really awesome score by Johnny Greenwood. I saw it twice at the Cannes Film Festival, and usually that only happens when I'm in Cannes and there's something I love so much that I have to see it again, and if I have the chance, I will. And um, uh, it actually, when it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, it had been finished a few days before its premiere. There were no credits on it. There was It was just so fresh. And she re-edited it uh, in, the, in the couple of months since Cannes, and I saw it again at the London Film Festival. And I actually prefer the Cannes cut slightly more, 
but nonetheless, it's still a, a fantastic film. And what really makes it so special is that it's a, a an 85 minute film where there's no extra fat in it. There's nothing that she could cut. Every last scene is perfect. There's no wasted exposition. There's 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 just you just go along for this 85 minute ride, and by the end you're you just you just your heart is pounding because you've went through something so unique and so um, not exciting because it's kind of depressing at times, but just just visceral in the way you feel it. It's worth looking into, and I know there will be divisive opinions on it because it doesn't like Drive. It's not really an action movie, but there's a lot of intense drama and brutality to it that comes out through just the way the scenes work. Like you see, this isn't really a spoiler, but you see people beat up, but you don't see them get beat up. That doesn't work for me sometimes, but in this film, it really worked for me. Well, my number nine is Logan Lucky. I think that was probably the most fun I had at the movies this year. Maybe up there with a different one on this list, but for different reasons. I just had so I just had it was so enjoyable because it felt like everybody was having a good time making it. It felt like the the people behind the movie, namely Steven Soderbergh, kind of understood where people were coming from as a viewer. I mean, there's even a self-referential line in the movie where they called them I forget the I forget the line. It's Ocean Ocean Seven Eleven. Yeah, Ocean Seven Eleven. Thank you. I enjoy a, a movie that knows what it is and delivers full bore on what it's trying to 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 accomplish. Daniel Craig as Joe Bang is like a revelation. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, I forget awards. It's just like you watched him on screen having a great time, and that's how you can apply it to you can apply it to everybody in this movie. Is it Steven Soderbergh's greatest movie? Hell no. I mean, is it one of the great movies of our time or even this year? Probably not. But I had such a good time that I went again. And then the minute it came out on home video a few weeks ago, I bought it, watched it. And now it's one of those movies that when I'm on an airplane, uh, I'm going to be playing it because I can just watch like any scene from it and smile. Again, just um, a really fun movie um, and a really great sort of take on the crime caper with a bunch of idiots just kind of fumbling their way through it with a twist at the end yeah yeah i really liked it and i also i was reading comments recently from soderbergh who said he doesn't make movies for audiences anymore he doesn't really care he just makes them for himself for fun and like you can really tell that you you kind of mentioned it already like you can really tell with logan lucky that's exactly what he did like every actor's having fun at it everyone's just having fun in it and it, it works it, it really like it's enjoyable in that way. You like, you don't care if you like it or not. You're just watching this fun movie where everyone made it and had fun. I hope he keeps these kinds of movies coming. Um, so my number eight is uh, the first of two documentaries that snuck onto my list this year. This is one of the first years that I've had two documentaries on my list, and that would be Faces Places, a French film made by a, a photographer named J.R. and a uh, longtime veteran filmmaker, French woman named Agnes Barda. And these two basically become friends. And the movie is this road movie where they go around north of France and take pictures of local people and paste them on buildings. And it's the it's the, the happiest movie I saw in 2017. It made me so happy. So happy. Just you smile the whole time. You feel good. It's inspiring. It's really lighthearted. It's, 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 it's just like fun to watch in a, in a really simply enjoyable way. It's creative in the way they do things. That uh, When I watched it a second time, I realized they break the fourth wall all the time. Things just happen to move them to the next scene without any explanation. But you're like, you know what? Who cares? Like it just, it just, You just go along with it. But it's really about the power of photography and the power of community 
and connecting these people and inspiring and empowering them. Um, and I really love it. There's one of these quotes I have from the trailer uh, uh, where she says, each face tells a story. And that's really what this film is about, is connecting with people and realizing that every single person, no matter who they are, has a story to tell. And I, and I highly recommend people to see this film. Even if, you, even if you just are like, ah, it doesn't sound like something I want to watch. It's like, no, just watch it. Faces, places, it's a charming, delightful film. And, and seriously, if I'm in a bad mood, I will watch this film. And no matter what, I will get into a good mood. That's kind of back-to-back movies that we really just put a smile on our faces. Well, that's, that's what matters these days. If there's something that does that to me, then I really, I'm, I'm like, especially connected to it. I feel you. Well, my number eight... Uh... I'm not sure if it put a smile on my face, uh, put a shit-eating grin on my face. Uh, <laughs> Get Out, which is Jordan Peele's uh, feature directorial debut. Um, a lot of people were talking about it when it came out earlier this year or in 2017. But, you know, it, 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 it's one of those mid-year releases that can lose steam come the end of the year. People forget they saw it or whatever. Um, but it has stuck with me from the day I saw it. You can just see a sense of ownership of this story. It's so patient with what it's trying to do. And by the time that you've been sucked into your theories in the movie about what's going to happen and who's doing what, um, it still manages to surprise you. I'm not a, a, a big horror genre fan, but I do love a good horror movie. This was more than just a horror movie. It was a thriller. And of course, you know, it is about so many different things. And under the surface, it's got a deep metaphorical layer to it, which I think is really interesting and fun to dissect and think about. But just at the surface, it's a damn good time. The ending is so cathartic for everybody, I think, that it really leaves you smiling with, like I said, a shitty grin because you kind of know what you've been through in that movie. I'm probably one of the few where it's not on my list. I really admired it, and I think Jordan Peele's going to have an amazing career. And I, my only thing is that I saw it late, so I was after all the hype and buzz of people saying it's amazing. And the biggest thing that let me down was the ending was kind of just like, nah, okay. But I, 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 I have no resentment or any bad feelings toward it, and I, I love that it's gotten this much acclaim and attention. And more than anything, I just hope this allows Jordan Peele to keep making whatever the hell he wants from now on because that's what he needs to do. Well, also, you know, in this sort of time where I'm personally obsessed with Black Mirror, I've always loved that show. Um, there is a bit of a Black Mirror vibe to it. No, it's not about technology in the way that that show is, but the execution of a sort of implausible reality, but making it feel actually real and terrifying is something I really enjoy as a moviegoer, and it captured that essence perfectly. And maybe I just need to see it again, and I will sometime soon. <laughs> Um, so my number, what are we on? Seven choice is a, a film that not a lot of people have heard about and um, it will be mentioned again later in the show, but Foxtrot uh, is the name of the film and it's a film from Israel and it's Israel's uh, submission to the best foreign language film category at the Oscars this year and I expect it fully to get a nomination. And it's a it's one of the most brilliant films I've seen, and it's very hard to describe. Um, the filmmaker uh, is a guy named Samuel. Uh, I don't know how to say his name correctly, but Samuel Maus. It's M A O Z or Maz. Either way, um, <laughs> he he uh, he directs this film, and it's about it's basically about two different segments. Um, it's about a family in Israel that deals with being told their son has died. The opening scene is uh, the military comes to his house, and they tell him their son has been killed while stationed at a remote outpost in Israel. And 
then you learn not only what happens to the parents and what they deal with and what they go through and there's some twists with them, but then you go back and you see the son's side of the story and you find out what happened to him and what really went on while he was stationed at this outpost. And it's the Syrian criticism of Israel and its military and its modern society in a really brilliant way that for most of us who don't live there and don't think about it often are now introduced to. And you think, holy crap, this is this is so deeply intelligent in the way it criticizes that society. But also, it's just a meticulously made perfect film where the sound design is phenomenal. I don't know if the, the volume was up too much when I saw it, but like, there's this the 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 kids at the outpost lived in lived in this um, uh, what's it called shipping crate that's sort of tipped to the side. And the way they test it is they roll a can down the side of this crate. And they see how long it takes to get to the bottom and hit the side. Well, the, the noise this can makes as it's rolling and when it hits the side of the, the, the crate is – it was so loud and so perfect. And it, I think it was designed to get deep into you in that way and like make you feel every little last you know, click and tink and, and moment in it. But beyond that, it's just the cinematography is incredible. I love the way the shots move. And then the, the score and everything else to it is just – phenomenal and um again it's so hard to describe because you just need to see and experience it and get into it and understand it and it's a film that i think most people won't have heard about and won't know about but i recommend it because it's one of those films that is so if you if you love cinema and you love the power of filmmaking this is a film you need to seek out and see and this one again just really really hit me when i saw it so i highly recommend it foxtrot i kind of feel like there's always one foreign movie every year that just really stands out and becomes more than just some foreign movie it's a great movie sort of sounds like that's it for you yeah yeah it is my number seven mudbound a movie i had no idea about just sort of downloaded on netflix because i thought okay sure this was probably the biggest surprise of the year for me it destroyed me I will admit that I watched it on a plane. A good movie is a good movie no matter where or how you watch it. That's just a fact. Um, not every movie has Christopher Nolan's, um, you know, IMAX ideas behind it. That being said, Mudbound is not only a beautifully shot film, uh, has some of the best cinematography of the year. It's just a devastating story. One that I feel like uh, in many ways we're familiar with racism in America and the uh, just sort of war-torn hero coming back from the war. And these two ideas are mashed together so beautifully and so carefully that it never feels like a, a preachy movie about one thing or another, but I always felt it is in many ways a Shakespearean tragedy. I think you could find a lot of parallels to Shakespeare when you watch this movie. There, I, I'm not gonna, I, I, there are some ways I could explain that by spoiling it, but I'd rather people just watch it on their own. And they can do that because it's on Netflix, which is... Kind of like a good thing and a bad thing. I wish this got a little bit more fanfare um, and got into the theaters a little bit more. But, you know, I think it's being respected by the people who have seen it. Um, and I hope that more people will. I mean, I had going into the movie, I had actually been wondering where Carrie Mulligan was these days. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and I had been, I didn't actively know she was in this movie. And whoop, there she is. But really, Jason Mitchell just tore down the house with this and he's a great actor i think you, you most people would be familiar with him from straight out of compton as easy e but uh I, i'm a huge fan of his now and now i'm a huge fan of the director 
uh, Dee Rees. She's one like Jordan Peele where I'm like, this film shows so much potential from her. And I, I really hope that everyone just in the industry just looks at her and is like, do what you want now. We'll give you more money. Like, make make more films like this. Because, you know, actually, one of my favorite parts of Mudbound is the World War II sequences in the beginning. Um, which uh, I, I love the whole World War II context of it. Because you could just make a, 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 a Jim Crow's, you know, South Southern racist movie. But because the, the war plays an important part in not only what's happening around them, but also the history of some of the characters, it adds to it. But the, the scene she shot with World War II made me be like, please make a whole World War II movie yourself. Like, I want that too from Dee Reese. Like, she has the potential to make such awesome movies. Bring it on. I want to jump into now my number six is the other documentary on my list. Um, and it's called Jane. And this film has been getting a lot of attention in the last few months because it opened uh, to quite a bit of fanfare a few few months ago in the U.S. There was like a a live uh, orchestra performance at the Hollywood Bowl with the documentary because the score for the film is by Philip Glass. Some people hate it and it kind of frustrates me because it's such a remarkable score, but it's very loud and comes into the film all the time. Like, the score is an intricate part of how the film works. So the film is about, it's a documentary made by Brett Morgan, who last made this documentary about Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. And this is his new film. And it's about Jane Goodall, the badass, like, female animal activist who was the first, literally the first woman ever to go out into the jungles in Africa and live with chimpanzees and befriend them and become a part of the chimpanzee world. And basically, as an American, you know, we learn about her story all the time. Everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows her story because this happened in the 1960s. And she's now a, a very outspoken activist for, for animals all over the whole world. But what this film does is it goes back and it tells her story from the actual footage that, she, that was shot of her when she first went into the jungles. And basically what happened is at some point National Geographic sent a photographer, a filmographer to go shoot her. And this guy uh, ended up becoming her husband. It's almost like a coincidental also, of course, because she was alone in the jungle and he was alone in the jungle. And they both loved doing things. So, of course, they turned out to be uh, married in the end. But it's a little bit about that. And the second half is about their relationship. They had a kid and how they dealt with that. But the first half is just about her going into the jungle. And the footage is unbelievable for for like 1960s you know one dude in his camera in the middle of an african jungle where there's no civilization for thousands of miles and was filming this it's amazing footage what what brett morgan does is he takes the footage he puts a, a voiceover narration from jane goodall on it and then he adds this score and uh, a a full-on 7.1 sound design to make you feel like you're in the jungle which i asked him about and he said they specifically designed it for the film and it takes you into this world in such a remarkable way. And I, like, literally 10 minutes into it, I was one of those, like, I'm fidgeting in my seat. I'm so excited by what I'm watching. And the whole movie just plays out so well. It's empowering. It's inspiring. It's, it, it was one of those films where I wanted by the end to just get up and cheer and be like, yes, this was awesome. I love Jane so, so, so much. And that's why it has to be on my top 10 because – I was considering whether or not to include it, and the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's a documentary. It's just an amazing film about an amazing woman, and it needs to be mentioned as much as I possibly can, and I want to keep mentioning it. So that's my that's my uh, number six is Jane. I just loved it so much. Well, I, I kind of disappointed in myself for not putting any documentaries on my top ten list, given that I am a documentary filmmaker to some extent, but... I guess just to sort of um, sidebar one, 
LA 92 was a documentary that I was just obsessed with this year. Uh, that was about the riots in LA in the 90s, and it was you, it, you reminded me of it because it uses only existing footage, whether it was footage filmed by people on the ground or news stations or helicopter police footage, only using footage, complete edited from raw footage, no narration, no nothing, just using news broadcasts and, um, and people on the streets and police, and, and the music is riveting, it's amazing. So I guess we'll put that as an honorable mention. But my number six is Lady Bird which um, I think is near the top of a lot of people's lists. It was actually my number one for a long time until I started rethinking it. I found this movie to be soulful and really authentic, which are easy words to say, I think, about a movie that is uh, about a teenage girl coming into eight, coming into her own. What really made it special to me is it's not just about her. It's not just about the main character. Everybody in the movie gets their time to shine. And even if it's just for a split second, like there's um, a teacher who um, has a, basically a mental breakdown in a moment that elicits some laughter, but is really heartbreaking and has this incredible depth to it where you can tell that Greta Gerwig, the director, and the actor had really thought through what that character was thinking in that moment. And this applies to so many different people in the movie. And I thought it was really beautifully done, really well thought out. Again, another sort of new filmmaker that I'm really excited to see what's next. But more importantly, a movie that I think just captured what it means to make a, a, an actor-driven movie. To have those performances be as wonderful as they are, and the, the tone of the movie to be as sort of joyful but also thought-provoking as it is. I mean, there's some devastating moments in this movie. Namely... Uh, when her friend has a bit of a reveal. You know, there's some unexpected moments and twists and turns. So I think that's probably something that people would say, well, that's what it's like to be a teenager. But to put that in a movie and to execute it as well as she did, I think says a lot. And I'm also just a big Saoirse Ronan fan. I think she's amazing. I'll watch anything she's in. And uh, and this was a great role for her. Yeah, I, I think it's a fine film. I don't have any problems with it, actually. Um, it just didn't make my top 10. As you said, I think it succeeds the most in being authentic and real and not a portrait of characters, but real people. I mean, that's what stands out the most from what I saw. The, this movie doesn't mean everything to everybody. And I'm not uh, a woman. I didn't relate to everything that went on in the movie. I went with my wife and she just adored it and it really connected with her. I mean, it, it says something about the relationship between a mother and a daughter and I think that's the main point of the movie. But I actually found it to be a much bigger ensemble piece than, than others felt like it was. And to me, that's what made it special. Well, my number five is uh, almost obvious but not obvious is Dunkirk. And I love Christopher Nolan. I'm a huge fan in Nolan We Trust. Hell yeah. But also, I, I don't know why I wasn't expecting to love this movie. I don't know. Something before I went to see it. But then I did love it. And um, we'll get into it later because I know it's also on your list. But also, I want to say that the only other thing I want to say is that, that what solidified it for me in terms of being on my top 10 was when I saw it in IMAX. And the experience is that much more intense in IMAX with full on full frame 100% of the movie was breathtaking and oh my god my heart was racing the whole time and I, I I'm a huge fan of World War II films and this one I think that's why I was hesitant about it at first but I this one is exactly a fantastic 
World War II movie that, um, yeah, we'll talk about it more. And and Darkest Hour is not on my list. Um, I don't think it's on yours either. But if if you're gonna talk about Dunkirk, it, it it does it is an incredible companion piece, and and they work so well together that they should actually probably just be cut together for fun. I did just see a, tra- a trailer for a fake mashup movie of the two that was well done worth checking yeah. out well the other one that is also dunkirk related is their finest which uh, i really enjoyed yes. and i would recommend like if you want to have a dunkirk day watch all three <laughs> it's it's really actually interesting i mean that you know because to to clarify dunkirk obviously takes place in the action uh darkest hour takes place sort of in the political theater and their finest takes place in that sort of cinema landscape that is not often talked about where they were struggling to figure out how to balance propaganda and cinema uh, because Hitler was doing such a good job of it. Um, that was your number. Yeah, that was your number. Five. Yes. <laughs> Mine is, again, following up on uh, Lady Bird having been about the mother and daughter relationship, another mother-daughter relationship movie, I, Tanya, which I had been looking forward to for a while. I grew up in that era of the Tanya Harding incident. But the movie does something completely unexpected and and unique. It's not unexpected if you watch the trailers. Uh, you get a sense of what kind of movie it is. Just uh, a really fun movie that understands the seriousness of the topic. There are moments in the movie that really shook me, like at my core. There's a moment when Margot Robbie looks at the camera and calls us, calls the audience, her abusers. Don't forget, you're here because you want to see this shit I went through. And the movie knows that. And it does so many different unique things. It's just a really creative film with a lot of creative ideas executed in ways that you wouldn't expect. It makes you a little uncomfortable at times. But something that stood out to me was Paul Walter Hauser's performance as Sean, the sort of like bodyguard guy, the best friend of her husband. He was amazing. Like, go see the movie just for him. Steals the movie. It would have won this guy an Oscar if it wasn't such a deep year for performances. It's amazing. It, it, it's an infectious crime documentary made into a movie. Yeah, I think it's genius film. Like you said, so creative in the way they do. It's like you, you could have told this so many simple, standard, straightforward ways, but the way he mixes up everything and, as you said, the fourth wall parts, all of it is just so genius. Um, and I toyed with it being on my top ten, too. I really loved it that much as well. To, to continue, my number four is The Florida Project, which is Sean Baker's new film um, about these kids living outside of Disney World in Florida. Um, and interestingly, the whole film, they never really show or talk about Disney World, I think for licensing reasons, but also because that's not what the film is really about. And uh, this is a very weird film because I went in to see it and the first 20 minutes you're like, you're just following these kind of like asshole kids around they're really sweet they're nice but they're just kind of like being jerks about things and you you, at first i'm like what what is this but then as you continue to follow it it just becomes this really really moving really intimate and um vibrant portrait of these people and i I guess to to sum it up quickly is that uh, what i feel it really succeeds at mostly is showing that it doesn't matter how much money you have or how you live your life. These are real people with real emotions and real desires and really they want to be someone and something and that we shouldn't just throw them aside and, and we should consider the, the lives that people live. And I, the other part of I really want to mention is Willem Dafoe stars as like the manager of this uh, motel where all these homeless people live in. And, and 
he it's one of his best performances ever. And that's saying a lot because Willem Dafoe is in a lot of movies. But this is one of his best ever because it's an understated but really warm performance. And if he wasn't there, it wouldn't work. The film really goes from like a six to a ten because of his presence, because of his performance. He's not because he's not even the main character, but he but he but he kind of ties it all together. I know some people won't like it, but I love it. And I know a lot of my film loving friends also love it because it just stuck with us. I saw it at Cannes and I was tearing up, but the person I sat next to, I don't know for the sake of if she wants to reveal that she can, but I won't say it. But the, the another prominent female film critic who was sitting next to me was crying the whole movie <laughs> in, in a good way. And they like, she was that emotionally affected by it. And, um, it's just, it's just something it's, I think the best way to say it is it's something special. It's a really special film. I, I'm really looking forward to tracking it down. I don't know if I'll get to see it in a theater, but I, I, I have to see yeah. that movie. You're going to like it, Mike. I, I have a feeling I will. Uh, my number four is very different, I think, Mother, yeah. which uh, was so, yeah, I, I think people, a lot of people hated this movie, <laughs> and some people didn't really understand what happened, and then some people loved it. I'm one of the people that loved it. I I, I was, like, smiling the whole movie you know, I'm not. Uh, I, I I'm not a very religious guy. Uh, I, I maybe that's part of the reason why people don't like it. I wonder if it's not really for people who are religious, because it tackles the Bible in a really unique way. I mean, if you look back at Noah, at Darren Aronofsky's Noah, he obviously has a very unique perspective on religion. Same with uh, the Fountain too, which you know I think. His he is the such a deeply spiritual person for somebody who is a who who self proclaimed not religious and this movie takes things we are familiar with and places them in a very deeply metaphorical environment and I think I just had so much fun watching the movie and sort of placing things and figuring out what they meant at times it's very clear what he's trying to do and show and then at other times it's very unclear to have a whole movie that's that close to your main character physically that close reminded me a lot of the movie I loved last year, which of course in this moment, I've forgotten the name, the Holocaust movie, uh, foreign film. Yeah. Are you talking about son of Saul? Yes. Son of Saul. It's really tough to make a movie like this. And I was really impressed by it. I, I found it to be just a really, really dark, but thoughtful movie. And, um, and I'm, I, I'm excited to watch it again. Like it's a rewatchable movie. And you don't get that very often every year. So that's one reason it's at, it's on my list. But the reason it's number four is because I just found it to be a movie I loved. Yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of sad we didn't have this podcast when Mother came out because we could literally record a two-hour podcast talking about it. And I would have loved to get into it with you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's the thing about it. Some people, when I first saw it was I was at the Venice premiere. And some people first saw it and said, there's not much to it. There's not many layers to it. And I'm like, you're objectively, you're what? objectively wrong. Like, and I don't want to get into that argument, but it's like, there are layers to it. Maybe you just didn't see them or more specifically, maybe you just didn't like them, but they are there. And some of the complaints I've heard have been like, the, it's too in your face, but I love it because when it gets to the part in the third act where everything is in your face, it's necessary. And it's so, it hits you so hard. You either react negatively and freak out and want to run away or you just sit there being like, oh, my God, I get what he's doing. And it's so it's 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 him just letting out his anger. Darren just being so angry about things. This is his his, his expression of that, which I think is so cool. If you've ever wondered what it looks like 
when an auteur makes something, this yeah. is it. Do you want a modern example of auteur filmmaking? This is it. And I've had great discussions with friends. Uh, I think if you see the movie, you'll be it would be impossible not to have a discussion with friends because yes, it's about biblical themes, but it's also a metaphor for filmmaking itself and criticism and fame. And it, there's a lot to it. Uh, and and I'm, I'm excited to hear other people discuss it. It is probably going to get lost in the wilderness of movies that people enjoyed. But I think over time, like The Fountain, it's going to have a really strong cult audience. I'm already on board. Yeah. So, and I hope you know. I hope in one of our future episodes we can get Darren on to talk more about it because he has such a fascinating mind. I really want to dig into things with him. Yeah. Um, so my number three is uh, another one that a lot of people are loving. It was already uh, one of my writers on my site already listed as his number one. It's The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's new film. And you know, I really want to watch it again. I only have seen it once, and I saw it in Venice at its premiere. And I really want to see it again and, and uh, get more into what I appreciate about it because I just had to rely on that first time and it, my, my memory's a little bit fuzzy now, but I, I just remember coming out of it thinking this is one of Guillermo's best. I love how it's a beautiful love story. It's very dark and rainy <laughs> and wet and green, but it's a beautiful love story. And it's also a love letter to different things. It's a love letter to love, of course, but it's also a love letter to cinema. I love this, the shot where the, the fish man is sitting in the cinema looking at the screen. Um, and it's a reference to so many films that Guillermo was inspired by growing up. Um, but it's also just such a strong film with Sally Hawkins and what she goes through. I mean, you have to think of the complexity of having a mute character who speaks with sign language as your main character, a woman, and also making her into a real woman who has desires and emotions, and then wrapping that around a conspiracy, you know, fish monster stuck in a lab story set in, what was it, the, the 50s or the 60s? And then on top of that, you have all these other characters. And it's such a complex but also lovely film and the way it plays out um and i just yeah i just really love it and i'm i'm so happy guillermo made this because i wasn't the biggest fan of his last two films and i know he's a great filmmaker but i just was had this feeling in my stomach about like i want i want to love a guillermo film again and and i know that's going to upset some people but finally i'm back to that point and shape of water is one that i love and was just so floored by and i yeah i I could go on and on, but it's 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 one of them that everyone talks about. So it's another one I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see yet, but I do think I'll see it Saturday if not uh, if not call me by your name. And I have a feeling either or both of those movies would have made my top ten list, but uh, but um, I'll get into my number three, which we don't have to talk much about uh, because there's already an hour and a half of discussion about it, which is Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Uh, I'll, I won't get into the movie itself, but I'll maybe just touch upon why it's my number three. I, sometimes movies are more than just the sum of their running time. When <laughs> a Star Wars movie comes out, it's it, it'd be really hard for it to not make my top ten because it's an event for me. It's it's an event for everybody, and that doesn't you know that doesn't it just because it's not on your top ten list doesn't mean it wasn't an event for you as well. But I, I loved it, and I loved the fact that we could be discussing it after the film, that it adds layers of discussion. I actually feel like if I had to pick a movie that I would watch, if I could only pick one movie from the year to watch, that would be where this one lands, if that's what this list is about for me. 
Interesting. <laughs> I, I, as you said, we talked about it plenty, and you can listen to that episode. And as much as I enjoyed it, 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 I just feel like it didn't make my top ten. But, and that's fair. I don't know if it was really made to be a top ten list kind of movie either. You know, it wasn't for everybody in that vein. But for me, it's just that I, I want to go back to the theaters and watch it again. And I want to keep discovering things. And I had some of the best reactions to any movie that I had all year from that movie. The gasping silence of the light speed jump and the back-to-back fight. I understand. It's cool, Mike. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to jump in. My number, my number two is probably the most controversial pick, but I also really love this film. Uh, my number two is War for the Planet of the Apes. And I, I knew it would be somewhere on my top ten, but I didn't know where. And I, I had a lot of difficulty finalizing numbers, and I, you know, you know, I'm sure everyone who makes these kind of lists would say, oh, if I had another week or two or a month or two, everything would change. And of course, that's how I feel. But I also just felt like I needed to give this its due, and so I put it as number two. Matt Reeves really made what I would say is a bona fide masterpiece. Um, the film is emotionally driven. It subverts the idea that it needs to be about a war, and there's war scenes and giant fights because it's not that. It's a very intimate film that's more about. What I think it's about is really about a leader and what it takes to be a true leader. And not only that, but the, the faults and the flaws that come with the leader. And how you can, you know, this has been building over two movies and finally with this third one, it's a, it's an, a, a remarkable trilogy. But but how in this one, it's sort of how you, how you finalize and lead a revolution, but how you can also recognize that the individual people in that are, are struggle with their own problems as well. And that goes for both sides. That goes for Woody Harrelson's character and for Caesar, played by Andy Serkis. But but on top of those themes, the other thing that just is remarkable about the film is the CGI, is the way, you know, I'm crying over apes. You know, who, who would have imagined that 15 years ago? But there are scenes in this movie that made me tear up because of the way they are acting. And you're, you're of course, there's a human performance behind it all. But the fact that the, the CGI artist at Weta could actually bring that to life and make you believe that this ape is really going through this is just amazing. And there's the there's the thread of it with the young girl they pick up. And there's just so much to it that I love. I also think it's one of Michael Giacchino's best scores he's ever done. Um, I listen to it often. And yeah, I'm a little bit shaky on the end. And I know that questions my claim that it's a masterpiece, but I also think it delivers exactly what it needs to deliver. I think it is one of the best blockbuster conclusions to a trilogy in a long time since one of my favorite films of all time is uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. It has that sort of satisfying, complete overall thing. And for the sake of, this is a spoiler, but who cares by now, I hope everyone has seen it, is the ending, which I've heard some people complain about, is like, how? why does that this avalanche just kill everyone so quickly, is that... To me, that what that means, the full circle concept of that, is that it wasn't the apes that took out the humans. It was nature itself, which is an interesting theme of man versus nature and how they lost that battle themselves, not because of the apes. Not uh, that the movie wasn't uh, incredible, but I was really taken aback by the performances. like Woody Harrelson playing Colonel Kurtz from uh, Apocalypse Now, essentially, was a lot of fun, just sort of a juicy pulpy performance and and steve zahn as the uh, new ape what was his name uh, well he's just bad ape i, I mean that was amazing uh, of all the things that andy circus has ever done i actually felt like that was my favorite performance in all of these movies 
Also, there's a shot at the beginning when they're the the overhead tracking shot of the first scenes um, fight was amazing. It made my jaw drop. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. It just it just, there's so much about it. it's it's not one of those things where you can say, oh well, the story's so great and everything else is okay. It's like the, everything about it is amazing. That's what that's what Reeves is so great about is he's not just built this emotional story, but some of his shots are phenomenal. Like the I mean, obviously this is a different movie, but in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, when there's that another long tracking shot of the ape like on the tank and everything's going on at the big battle at the end, like. I knew he would do these kind of things in war, and he delivers a couple of them. I mean, like, the shots isn't just riding on the beach are beautiful. Like, he has all these just amazing shots in his films. Sure does. Well, my number two is The Big Sick. I just really connected with this movie. It, 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 um, I felt like I understood everybody's motivations. Every single scene felt real. And, of course, it's because in many ways it was real. To do it in a comedy, to do it the way they did it, with jokes that still um, linger in my mind, like the 9-11 lost our best guys joke. I mean, that's the best joke of the year. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) You don't see jokes like that on screen. They took a lot of risks in their writing that way. We got a performance from Ray Romano that was, I think, a very unexpected and heartfelt turn. It It was just a very important movie that I think really does a great job of explicitly showing how important it is that we stick together how important it is not to judge other people immediately, especially when you're all trying to accomplish the same thing. So on that level, on the big scope, I think it did a lot uh, of good. But on just a comedic level, I think it really delivered in that sense as well. I don't want to be the dissenting opinion here, but I guess I have to be. I'm not the biggest fan of The Big Sick. And I saw I've only seen it once. I saw it at the Sundance premiere. So it's been literally one year since I saw it. And um, my biggest problem was that it was too long, I felt. And then my other weird, stupid beef with it, and not to, you know, rain on your parade, because of course you love it, and a lot of people do, was that um, I found it odd that it was a love story, but the the main female aspect of that love story is in a coma for 75% of the movie. And I, can, I understand that that's the concept, that's what it is, da-da-da-da-da, but like, it just... I don't know. It just didn't. I didn't really feel anything for it when I saw it. I thought, yeah, this is good. It's got its moments, but it didn't really impress me as the way it does you. So I will. I will drop in this little bit of dissension here for that. That that feeling. And again, like some of these films, maybe I need to see it again in a new light and not at a festival. But I, I don't know. I'm just a little... I'm not the biggest fan of it. It's fair to say that, you know, in, in as a movie, the love romance wasn't as earned as it might be in other movies where tragedy strikes. But I think when, when you watch it, at first I thought it was going to be very much like this. They're in love and then she gets sick, but he hasn't met her parents or something. And to an extent, that's what it is. But, but I, I actually got the sense that they were pretty much not gonna work out and then this happened and it didn't it was no it was no longer about their romance or their love it was about him being sort of put in this position that he wasn't ready for and the same goes for the parents and it's about all these people it's about the people who help when you're sick or when you can't talk for yourself and they have to work it out for themselves i think he knew kumail knew when it happened uh, or when it was all over, that there was a really interesting story there. And I'm glad that he mined it and worked on it with her, because I think that also is part of the reason why it felt so realistic. Authentic is the word I like to use. Yeah, okay. I mean, like, it's, I get everything you're saying. It just didn't... Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's fine. 
that's fine. You don't even have to like the movie just because it's on. No, my I know, list. I know, I know, and I, I, yeah, it's just a, I don't want to take away from people's love for what's on their top tens, but um, I'm just expressing my feelings about it. It's. I think it's it's fair it's fair for you to explain why it's not on your yeah, top. Yeah, of course. Ten. I mean, if you have a reason why it didn't work for you, I think there's a lot of people who watch these movies that we loved and think the same thing. I'm sure some people rolled their eyes when I said Star Wars was my number three. <laughs> they stopped listening. They're not even at this point anymore. Who knows? <laughs> but now we get to go to the big drum roll of number one anyway. So Okay, my number one is what everyone who knows me would expect. It's Call Me By Your Name. My God, I love this film so much. Um, Call Me By Your Name, I've seen four, four times now. Uh, I saw it for the first time at Sundance at its world premiere. And... Um, it was such an impactful moment for me that night. I saw it and I and I came out and we're in last year's Sundance. It was snowing every day constantly. And this film transports me to the sweltering heat of Italy in the summer and totally made me forget I was in the snow. So I come out and I'm literally like dancing in the streets. I was so hyped on cinema. Like that's like I want to be as um, – hyperbolic as I possibly can because this film actually deserves it like it's it's literally just I I can still recall just the joy I felt walking out and just 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 like a a love for cinema that was burning in my heart because everything about it is perfection it's also I referenced it uh, a masterpiece a couple of times in this but this is another film that I think is a masterpiece where it's a it's a deep deep film about love and there's there's um I don't know, I could go on for an hours, but one of my favorite scenes is, is one that someone mentioned should be in uh, the story of film, uh, the documentary about cinema history, which is the one where they're walking around the fountain. And it's basically this, like, lyrical moment of them expressing their love for each other without actually saying that. And the way they walk around this fountain is just, it's just like you can feel the sexual tension between them. And and it's just so, the the, the music to it too, there's some songs from uh, Sophie and Stevens who are just like, come in and every time they come in, they just like melt my heart. And it's just so, it's, it's also, it's funny to me because my last, my number one last year was La La Land. And thematically, these films are basically the same. La La Land is about this relationship these two people have, and then it doesn't work. And at the end of the film, they sort of look back and see that as beautiful it was it would have been for them to, to, to continue their lives together, they're now in their own lives, and that's it, and it's almost better for each other. But then when you get to the scene at the end with Michael Stuhlbarg explaining this speech, which everyone talks about is probably the best scene in cinema from 2017, or at least the best dialogue, that moment explains that feeling of, Hey, even though you you're sad now, you have to look back and appreciate the true feelings you had at that time and how rare and how remarkable and how special that was. And yeah, and so I, like I said, I could talk for hours about this film, but I love it so 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 much. Um, I, I I think the performances are are spectacular. Timothy Chalamet um, is amazing as the kid. He in his final shot, one of my favorite final shots ever in a film is Michael Clayton, which is the one where he just gets in the cab and he just rides around in the cab, and his credits start rolling. Nothing since then has been as excellent of an ending until Call Me by Your Name. And I won't talk about it because you have to see it and you'll know and you'll know what happens. But that final shot is just in the way it ends, just heartbreaking, but in a in a in a in a 
deeply satisfying, like, this movie is perfect way. I'm only going to say this once because I hate that this has to be part of the discussion. I'm a straight guy, too. So so even though it's a, a gay love story, I still connect with it. It's about love. It doesn't matter who is, who's in love. It's about love. And it's about this connection these people have. And I could literally watch it at any time, any day, and still have that smile on my face and that feeling I had the first time I ever watched it. I'm looking forward to seeing that because uh, I've heard nothing but good things. And that last shot, everybody keeps talking about that last shot. So I just like have to see it if only for that last shot. So, well, my number one is, like you said, uh, no surprise to anybody that knows me, Dunkirk or uh, Dunkirk <laughs> or Dunkirk. I'm not sure how to say it, but I've had fun trying to figure it out. I, I, I just love this movie. I've watched it probably 15 times by now. What? Really? Uh, yeah, I just, I, there, first of all, um, there's an energy to this movie that makes it really easy to watch. Um, you know, it's blasphemous, but I've been doing it on my iPad. You know, as, by the way, sit on an airplane and watch Dunkirk. Do yourself that favor. Because when they're in the plane or whenever the music is going, especially when you're when your plane lands, it's like uh, somehow makes you feel like you're in an action movie. <laughs> awesome. You could, I guess, just listen to the score too. But the score, I mean, the, this Hans Zimmer doing his thing, something special and unique and new. Just to, to have Chris Nolan execute a vision that's so different from what we're used to seeing. And that's why I like him as a, as a director. I like his movies. He tends to do that, but he's never done it quite so specifically as taking uh, the construct of movies and just doing it different. That's something really special, and I think we were all really fortunate to get to see a movie that toys with expectation and structure the way that this did. And from just a general filmmaking perspective, it's an incredible to see something that has that much organization and simplifies something as complex as a war film. Am I already a sucker for war movies? Kind of like you? Yeah, I am. Saving Private Ryan, one of my favorite films Me of too, all time. high five. Would I have... <laughs> high five? Would I have liked to see what these characters' lives were about, what they were going home to, what was home to them? Yeah, I think that would have been really cool. And I still would have probably put it as number one on my list if that had happened too. But um, I really like the fact that it didn't. And we have a movie that is unlike any other. That's kind of the theme, I think, of a lot of my list this year, even though I had prefaced it all with being a little bit mainstream. You know, I think when you look at Dunkirk and you look at Mother and I, Tanya, even Molly's Game, uh, Logan Lucky, these are movies that I think take the idea of what those t stories are supposed to be like and kind of flips them around a little bit and makes them unique experiences uh, that you don't feel like you've seen before, which is really what it's about for me. I agree. You know, the thing with Dunkirk that made me feel like I love this movie is when the three storylines come together. Or even when, even the moment when I realized that they would come together. Because it made me realize that, that as you just said, this film is unique. It's not just a conventional, straightforward telling of here's what happened. It's a... It's a really bold, ambitious attempt at intertwining three different storylines that take place over different times and connecting them all together and showing you the grandness of this moment of this evacuation and yet not not going too far into turning it into this war movie, which, as you said, there would be explanations and more about the characters. It's like it is what it is. It's a it's a very focused thing. But also grand in its in its accomplishment of telling the bigger story. I have 
I, we talked about this briefly when it came out, but I had one tiny beef, which is that I don't feel the epicness of the boats at the end, which is because I guess Nolan wanted to not use CGI. So it's funny that the, the shots in Darkest Hour of the boats I like more than the shots of the, the boats in Dunkirk. Yes. It was a mistake. I think that's the biggest weakness of the film, if any, is, I mean, just, I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard to do CGI. He did CGI with the boats when they were all the way out in the water, and eh. I'm take. happy it's on my list. Really, I, 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 ha- I didn't have a doubt in my mind that it deserved to be on there. Yeah, and well, to clarify, it, you know, that does not mean I think it should win Best Picture. I'm actually fully aware it won't win Best Picture. Um, I think it has a great shot at other awards, but I don't really care. Yeah. Like, it's who gives a shit? Um, that's not what this list is about, obviously. Um, and I hope that, I assume people have seen the movie, and so it's really more a matter of whether or not they agree. But I think there are a lot of movies on this list, both of our lists that people hadn't seen, that hopefully because we um, waxed poetic, hopefully, about it a little bit, people will go check yeah. them out. I hope so too. I mean, that's really what it's all about. It's like these are my personal favorites. Those are your personal favorites, and and that's the best thing about film is that we can all have our personal favorites and express that desire, not desire, express that love for them and our appreciation for these films in our own way, and hope other people can learn from or gain some insight and see them for themselves. And and I think that brings us before we connect with Alicia. Maybe we talk a little bit about 2018 the movies specifically that we are most looking forward to. Um, I know you go to a lot of film festivals, so you may not know some of the movies that you're most excited <laughs> yeah. for yet, but you probably well, do. Well, I actually had a trouble coming up with a list for 2018 because my first thought was, yeah, I don't know what to see at the festivals. That'll happen. But my second thought was <clears throat> there's not a lot I was really excited about. Like, for example, Pacific Rim, the sequel. You know, I'm, I'll see it. It looks fun, but I'm not really excited about it. I'm not really anticipating it. And a lot of the films on the schedule, I, I felt like that's so far. That's what I feel like. A lot of sequels and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm just going to rattle off my, my list I did come up with. I want, I want, I want five seconds. Who, If you're listening, get a pen. Because we're about <laughs> to both rattle off a lot of movies. Yeah. So my most anticipated of 2018, uh, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, which I'm a huge Fantastic Mr. Fox fan. So I, and I'm a dog lover, so I cannot wait. I knew that would be. I knew that would be number one for you, by the way. <laughs> of course. And I see it in like a month or two months in Berlin. Um, Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of the novel. I love the novel. I don't care if you don't like the novel. I love it. I'm a geek. Um, I'm honestly excited for the solo movie. I think I think Ron Howard was a great choice to replace Lord and Miller. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful for it. I can't wait to see some footage. Alex Garland's Annihilation, I think, looks amazing. I haven't read the book yet, but I think I'm going to see it first, then read the book. Um, I'm really excited for Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Coogler is a hell of a director, and I think he's going to do something we have not seen yet with the Marvel movies, hopefully crossing fingers. Um, Obviously, this makes sense, but Incredibles 2 from Pixar, uh, thankfully because Brad Bird is back in the director's seat and not someone else. Um, I'm actually kind of excited about Ocean's 8, uh, especially because it's produced by Soderbergh, which means he's making sure it fits within the Ocean's world, which I love the Ocean's movies. Um, I'm excited for this very random but totally, hopefully, badass uh, puppet movie called Happy Time Murders, which is an R-rated, like, puppet movie. Um, I'm really excited for the Spider-Man animated movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which the first trailer, if you haven't seen it, looks awesome. That's what made me add it to this list. It looks so cool. 
Um, and then we haven't seen footage, but I'm still kind of confident about The Predator, which is uh, Shane Black's new version of this movie. Um, Shane Black is a, a, a great director, and I think he's going to do something different, or hopefully. Um, and then the last few are uh, the new film from the guy who made Call Me By Your Name. He, he remade Suspiria, which is the, the Italian horror. I'm excited for the new film from Damien Chazelle, who made La La Land. It's uh, called First Man, which is about uh, the first man on the moon. I'm totally Neil Armstrong, <laughs> and I'm I'm actually excited about the Bohemian Rhapsody movie with Ram, Rami Malek as lead singer of Queen. Is that still coming out this year? So far, because I actually read that they found a replacement director already, um, and it's some unknown guy. So of course that should make me feel concerned, but I'm I'm most excited because I think Rami Malek is the perfect choice. I'm I'm excited for and I'm gonna put this in a uh, God particle which is the official former name of what is now known as Cloverfield 3, which still doesn't have a title. But um, it was shot and made as God Particle, which is a film about uh, something where the Earth disappears because someone invented some like fusion device. And we don't know much about it. It's apparently been changed to now be a Cloverfield film. And I hate that aspect of it. I hate the gimmick of the marketing they're doing for it. But I'm still excited because it's a cool original sci-fi film. So bring it on. Let's see it. I hope it's damn good. So yeah, that's my list. Well, um, a couple of the same ones from me. I'll just turn those ones out. Solo, which, by the way, many of my closest friends think it's going to be a heaping pile of shit. I completely disagree until I see it, which I will recognize a heaping pile of shit if I see it. But I, I'm really hopeful. I think a lot of great people are behind this movie. I've always loved Solo's story. I think seeing the Kessel Run, seeing him and Chewie meet or, or do whatever, uh, Donald Glover as Lando. I mean, come on. This is all great. Woody Harrelson. Maybe it's a mess. I don't know, but there's going to be a lot of good ideas in it. Uh, let's see. Isle of Dogs. It's Wes Anderson. Come on. Uh, Black Panther. The trailers are so cool. I'm so excited to see that. Ready Player One, same deal. And it's Spielberg. I'm looking for... I think Infinity War is going to be a huge huge tentpole piece. It's going to be really fun to see how that all goes down. Um, Ocean's 8, Cloverfield 3, God Particle, whatever you want to call it. Anything Damien Chazelle touches, um, I'm in. And to be a Neil Armstrong movie starring Ryan Gosling is like a, a golden ticket. So those are the movies that I, I'm looking forward to that you've mentioned. A couple that you didn't. Uh, Sicario 2. Sicario was just like one of my favorite movies uh, came out two years ago, and I know they got rid of Emily Blunt, which is probably a big mistake. Uh, but finally, having seen finally having seen a trailer, um, I'm actually like still in. I'm still on board. I loved that style of crime thriller movie, and I hope they stick with what made the first one great. So, Red Sparrow, which is the Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, we don't really know much about it, but she's like. A hit woman. She's kind of like it's kind of like the Black Widow movie that we haven't gotten yet. The Irishman, which I think hopefully comes out this year. I, there's no release date, but that's the Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, Martin Scorsese movie that uh, you may have seen. Robert De Niro wearing like high platform shoes in a set photo, which is kind of funny. Lastly, the one I'm really excited about but know nothing about is Backseat, which is the title for Adam McKay's movie, the Dick Cheney one that. Christian Bale's going to be in. And I think Dick Cheney, I think, uh, I'm sorry, Adam McKay has found a new calling as that sort of filmmaker. That's pretty much it. There's also a Will Ferrell, uh, John C. Riley movie coming out this year, a comedy, which I think is like a take on uh, Sherlock Holmes. I'll, I'll watch anything with those two in them together. 
because Step Brothers is one of the funniest movies ever made. But that's about it. I mean, look, there's a lot of good movies coming out next year and a lot of really exciting ones that we didn't mention. But it's always funny because at this point in the year, we sort of figured it out. A lot of people think they figured it out. But um, I mean, there's going to be 10 to 15 movies that we've never heard of that just kind of come out of the woodwork and are amazing. Well, that's the. I guess the, the the next exciting thing is I'm going to Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival, in two weeks here in Utah, and um, that's sort of the first major breaking moment of you know testing the waters and seeing what can be amazing. And obviously, Call Me by Your Name was there last year, so um, we'll follow up with the next episode uh, later this month and and recap some of what I've seen there. And you never know, maybe there's something that similarly like Call Me by Your Name is just floors me um, and ends up on the list. So we'll see. I, that pretty much sums up all of our movies. We've talked about yeah, a lot. Yeah. This is kind of like a jam-packed episode, and I think looking ahead, um, we're going to try to make episodes a little bit more contained and focused. But you know, this this time of year, there's a lot to talk about, and there's no reason there's no reason to pare it down. Of course, and the, the only other postscript I want to add is that there's always the the comments of, well, what did you think of this movie? And yeah, you know, a lot of it we probably saw, but if a, if there's something you thought, hey, why didn't this year make your list? Well, it didn't make the list because it didn't reach me that way. And if there's something you want to know Mike or I's opinion on, you know, please email us or tweet us or whatever and ask us about it. Because um, I know some of the favorites, like A Ghost Story, uh, didn't make my list. I really I really admire this film. I think it's fantastic, but it just didn't make my list. Um, and there's stuff like that where it's like, you know, I really, really like these films. It just didn't make my top ten list. Um, the pie-eating scene might be one of the top ten of the yeah. year, though. That <laughs> yeah. scene. Um, so for right now we're going to go over and talk with Alicia and hear her thoughts on her top ten and uh, continue on. So thank you for joining us, Alicia. We're happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here talking about films from last year. There's so many good ones. And just to give you uh, all of our listeners an introduction, Alicia is uh, one of my favorite voices in the film community today. And I've known her for a long time, and I really wanted to talk to her because she has so much interesting things to say and also a a unique perspective. Um, And on top of that, she has a new book. It came out last year, uh, Backwards and in Heels, and has also launched a new podcast recently, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is, do you refer to yourself as a critic or what do you call yourself? I don't know. I have been trying to figure that out for a long time because um, I'm not quite a critic in that I don't post regular reviews anywhere. Uh, I do go to all the festivals. Film reporter is often what I call myself. I don't like to say film expert too much because I don't think I am an expert. Um, (laughs) One day I'd love to be a film historian. That would be a good title. Or a film feminist maybe. But um, we'll go with film reporter. (laughs) Okay. But you're you're like me. I would I would refer to myself as a film lover most oh, yeah. more than anything. You know, like I uh, I wanna I wanna see films and love them and talk about the ones I love and the ones I want to champion and the ones I want to get people to see just because that's what drives me. I see something great and I want to tell people about it. Exactly. I have made the decision not to talk about films that I don't like and I I don't want to support. I just don't talk about them at all. I decide to use my voice 
in a positive way to shine light on the smaller films that people might not know about, that might not cut through all the marketing, the films that I get to see at film festivals. And I'm very lucky that I get to go to these film festivals. So then I can really talk about these films in advance and keep championing them through and talk about their filmmakers as well, original voices that deserve to be heard. So I'd say probably the title that suits me most is Film Geek. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Because I am a geek about film. So anyway, let's jump into it. What is? Do you want to start ten to one, one to ten, or do you just want to name films? What do you? What do you? So, feel? Uh, we'll go ten to one. Leave a little okay. bit of mystery to the end. Uh, okay. So starting with my number ten from 2017, The Florida Project. I got to see this film in Cannes uh, during the director's fortnight, and it was it just left me in a puddle of tears. Such a gorgeous film, of course. Sean Baker, who I talked to for the Filmstruck podcast. He is someone that shines a light on communities that don't normally get seen on the big screen, like with his film Takeout, where he looked at illegal Chinese immigrant uh, delivery workers, delivery guys in New York, or Prince of Broadway, which was all about West African hustlers on Broadway selling counterfeit designer goods or tangerine, of course, about two trans women running around L.A. causing causing a muck, you know, running a muck. And then with the Florida Project looking at the hidden homeless just outside of Disney World in Florida. I had no idea about this issue and it is just such a wonderful juxtaposition between the magic kingdom, the happiest place on earth, and then the magic kingdom of these series of motels where these kids live, like little Mooney, who's the center of the story. And that ending, man, man, that ending gets me all the time. So you're on the positive side with the ending, because I've talked to people who, who always say, oh, I don't know what to think of the ending, but I'm glad you actually love it, because that's what I, I felt it. too. I love it. I don't want to give anything away if people haven't seen it yet, but the thing that gets me in puddles of tears, and I mentioned on the podcast when I talked to Sean Baker that I was actually speaking to my therapist about this, <laughs> about wow. this ending in particular, because she was like, what is it about the ending that actually makes you cry? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is a young girl running to her friend for help. And that mm. is just such a wonderful idea for me that she runs to her little best friend to save her, to take her away from everything. Um, I think that's what that's what does it for me. Cool, I agree. Yeah. So then, uh, going into my number nine, Faces Places or Village Visage, um, which is directed by J.R., the street artist, and Agnes Varda, the legendary French filmmaker, the only woman working during the French New Wave. She's still going strong. Such a charming documentary. Another one I saw in Cannes. And uh, I love that these two together, they're like a little odd couple, you know, he's very tall, she's very small, and they both have a lot of differences, but a lot of similarities. They work together so well as a friendship, as a a creative partnership. Again, like Florida Project, people who don't normally get their, their chance in the spotlight, when they see themselves large on on their their villages, on their buildings that they know, it really elicits an emotional response and it makes them feel like they are powerful where many people in northern France don't feel that powerful at the moment. It stays away from politics, but it definitely has a lot to say. Yeah, I agree. Do you, I love the segment uh, with the three dock worker women, or oh, dock yeah. worker wives women, like, and especially the final part with them when they get up on the huge uh, the crates. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's such a, a powerful symbol for 
women standing tall in a man's world and these women who are supporting the men who have to work so hard and they get their moment to shine. I mean, I, I love that. Definitely. Then number eight, The Shape of Water, Gamma del Toro. It's a magical monster melodrama. I saw this one at Telluride and appropriately it was pouring with rain while this movie was going on. And I know Gilmo, I spoke to him afterwards and he said that he was quite upset with the rain because it was very loud on the theatre and you could hear it. But I thought it just added to the mood. I thought it was very appropriate. Sally Hawkins, incredible performance, saying so much without saying a word. And I love with this movie that she is, you know, a mute janitor and this kind of character is someone that you don't normally get to see in a sexy way. And from the very beginning, you see her morning routine where she takes time to pleasure herself while she's waiting for her eggs to boil. I love that. I think we don't often see that with women on screen. And and she is a, a sexual woman. Um, and then, you know, with her, with Octavia Spencer, with Richard Jenkins playing her gay friend and with the, the fish man that <laughs> Sally's character ends up falling in love with, it's such a unique a little group of characters uh, right in the centre of the story and then Michael Shannon playing the guy who is the true monster. It's weird, but then you watch it and you're like, this is actually really nice. It's, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm sure some people can mention it, but the, the fact yeah. that they... It, 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 it's actually very sweet. <laughs> it, is, it is sweet, you know. I, people might say it's bestiality, but it's actually set up in such a beautiful way that it, it works really well. And Guillermo said that he, you know, was inspired by this movie ever since he was really young. He wanted to make a film like this because he watched Creature from the Black Lagoon and he wondered why the monster and the woman didn't end up together. <laughs> uh. For number seven, Jordan Peele's Get Out. This movie really blew me away. I thought it was extremely clever. The use of foreshadowing in the script when you watch it a second time, you notice how many things are said at the beginning, which end up coming true at the end. It doesn't go where you expect it will. He takes these horror movies and turns the tropes on their heads in a very smart way. You can tell that he just loves cinema. It's got a little bit of Stepford Wives and a little bit of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in there um, and uh, Daniel Kaluuya at the centre of the story. I thought he really shone and, and I'm glad that he's getting a lot of attention now because he deserves to get more work. So many smart things to say about this so-called post-racist society that we live in, cultural appropriation, literally <laughs> cultural appropriation, wanting to inhabit someone else's body and privilege. So many layers to this movie. Um, yeah, so number six is Foxtrot, the Israeli mm -hmm. film. I know that played at Berlin last year, I think, Alex. Um, I don't know. I saw it in Venice. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It's been going on for the on the circuit for a while, and I finally caught it at Toronto, and that was after a lot of buzz about it already from previous festivals. And I was so happy that I saw it. It's a really unique film, a satire on the Israeli army, also a deep look at grief, another film that takes you to places that you don't expect. And the way that the film was shot, I thought, was beautiful. The cinematography, unexpected camera angles, uh, these huge, wide shots of the landscape. And it also has an amazing dance sequence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. That was so amazing with one of the soldiers. 
doing the foxtrot and then adding his own vibe to it. Um, such a, a special film and one that I hope people see more. So good. Um, number five, The Square, which was the film that took the Palm d'Or at Cannes last year. Um, I know that some people didn't enjoy this film as much as I do. I get that it is very long and it does feel at times like a series of sketches rather than a, a cohesive movie. But I love the the quirky style of it. I love Ruben Oslin, the director who made Force Majeure. Um, so funny. This one is also very dark. Look at modern art and, again, privilege um, and who you choose to help and who you don't choose to help and, and how that affects you when you need to ask for help. Elizabeth Moss has a great little part in there uh, and a great use of... Um, that song, uh, is it by Justice? I really Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite films that makes you actually think about like everything going on. <laughs> yeah. And then number four is another film I saw in Cannes, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I love dark, dark movies. And um, this one definitely makes you uh, squirm in your seat one second and then laugh the next. Yorgos Lanthimos, the director, who, of course, did Dogtooth and then The Lobster, which I also really enjoyed. I know that film was divisive. Uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer is much darker, I think, than both of those films, starring, starring Colin Farrell as a doctor who has this relationship, this friendship with a boy, I thought, brilliantly by Barry Keogh. I think he deserves more talk in, in just general conversations about young actors who are up and coming. Yorgos is one of the most original voices working in film today, that he has such a, a style. You know instantly that it is a film by him, by the, the dialogue, the cadence. And then with this film especially, he has such wonderful wide tracking shots that just a beautiful long long takes that you just walk watch you know two people walking down a hallway and it's so enthralling uh gorgeous to look at and a, a score as well that makes you feel really unsettled uh he's also just a master of tone again just making you laugh one second and then want to uh run out of the cinema the next <laughs> Uh, number three was a film that I didn't see at Cannes, although it played there. It was Good Time by the Safdie Brothers, starring Robert Pattinson, who, you know, if you have any doubts about, if you think he's just the guy from Twilight, you got to watch this film because he transforms completely into this character who you know, gets his brother in trouble and, and his brother needs a lot of help and then he's trying to break his brother out of jail, out of the hospital, things go wrong. So tense, this film. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. The Safdie brothers are such unique voices in films, and I know people are now discovering them with good time, but they have a whole body of work, which actually you can see on the Criterion channel on Filmstruck, along with a, a little mini documentary about the about the Safdie brothers, which is really interesting if you don't know too much about them. I was mixed on this film because I, my biggest problem was that the changes, the character focus halfway through, if you know what I mean. And I don't want to like give all of it away, but that kind of yeah. threw me off. But uh... yeah, that didn't throw me off so much. But um, but you're right, it is it is quite a change. I think his overall commitment to the to the role and and it just sucks you into this world that um, the Safdie brothers create. Yeah, I just thought it was such a wonderful movie. And then number two, Lady Bird, which yeah. is just 
charming and wonderful, and I'm so happy for Greta Gerwig, although she definitely deserved to be nominated for Best Director for the Golden Globes. But anyway, um, <laughs> Lady Bird is a, a unique uh, coming-of-age story, and you don't usually say those words about a coming-of-age story because we've seen so many of these. But with her voice and the way she writes these quirky characters that are also incredibly relatable, and Saoirse Ronan, who is, has so much talent at making these believable characters, uh, it's about this teenager who's in her last year of high school before going to college, just wants to escape Sacramento in California uh, to go to New York. She calls herself Ladybird. But at the heart, it really is about a mother-daughter story. And that's what I appreciated. In American teenage films, so often the girl is just about finding the guy. And it's usually one guy that she's after. Here, Ladybird, like many teenage girls, has multiple guys that she likes and she kind of changes as she goes along. And then mainly it is about mother and daughter and how that is an important relationship. Also, the big, you know, chasing someone for the prom scene is actually her and her best friend, who's also a girl, um, and how their relationship, their friendship is is the, is really important to both of them. I thought that was sweet. Even little things like having Saoirse Ronan not wear too much makeup so she didn't look perfect. She dyed her hair herself, Saoirse, so it had that teenage uh, homegrown look about it. And all those little touches just subvert the ideas that we often see in American films, which is these kind of perfect teenage girl characters or the ones that, take off their glasses and then transform into the quote-unquote hot girl. You know, it just turns all those tropes on its head and and it's just such a, a sweet movie. And I'm happy for its success. That's the best part about it is that people have been seeing it and it's been making money and that's great for Greta and for the film and for A24 and for everything about it. Um, it is just a small movie, but it's, it's so sweet and um, special that I'm glad that it's getting seen and, and people do really enjoy it um, if they don't have too much of an unbelievable high expectation. And then my number one is yeah. a film I've seen multiple times now, and I just told you guys before we started recording that I was thinking about going to see it again for a sixth time today. Call Me By Your Name. Um, this movie I heard about at Sundance, and it was one of those films, which always happens to me, where I, I plan out my Sundance, I think I've got my schedule right, and I'm going to see all the films that everyone's talking about. And then there's one movie that everyone else sees and I don't see and everyone's talking about, and I'm like, I want to see that film. So this was Call Me By Your Name for me last year, and I wanted to see it so badly that I ended up changing my flight <laughs> to go back from Sundance a day later and adding an extra night uh, in my hotel room. So it probably cost me about $400 to see this film, but I was determined to see it. And then I'm really glad that I did that. I don't regret it because it, it is it remains my favourite film of 2017. And it's almost been a year since I've seen it now. And now I've seen it five times and I can't wait for a sixth. Um, a special movie based on a book of the same name. And if you haven't read the book or even if you have, and you enjoy audiobooks, then I highly recommend the audiobook version of Call Me By Your Name because it's read by Army Hammer. 
and his voice is incredible and it's a very sexy book. I love how intelligent the characters are, how they talk about art and philosophy. They're very well read. Uh, they play music. Um, Michael Stuhlbarg, who is another unsung hero of 2017 with roles in The Post, In the Shape of Water, also Fargo, and then Call Me By Your Name, where he has an incredible moment at the end. The parents in this movie are played with uh, are just such wonderfully supportive characters that they're the kinds of parents that you would wish you would have in, in real life. Um, a great speech at the end there, yeah, by Michael Stuhlbarg. Beautifully shot, uh, just the kind of film that I want to crawl up inside and, and live inside it um, and run away to Italy and <laughs> eat lots of nice food and uh, learn to play music and read lots of books. Uh, I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop as well. Luca Guadagnino directed it and he did A Bigger Splash and I Am Love and uh, once again just shows he has just a, a talent for making these gorgeous, gorgeous films. Yeah, I agree. I'm right there with you, Lisa. That's my number one, too. <laughs> Yay! Such a sensitive, sensual relationship at the center of it. Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet have such great chemistry. Uh, heartbreaking as well. And one of the best closing scenes in a film that I've seen in a long time. Well, what I think is nice about your list is it is not full of very big release movies, not 3,000 theater movies. It's movies that uh, a lot of people may not have heard of. And if they hear you gushing about them and talking about how much you loved them, it might inspire them to see it and carry on the conversation, which is something that uh, many of these filmmakers need to help get their visions seen Absolutely. by people. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's always my hope. And that's what I see as kind of my purpose, if I can be a bit Oprah about it is just to try to get these films out to people who, um, you know, might've discovered me through more mainstream shows that I, I did. Uh, I always love indie films and uh, I just never naturally enjoyed the, the star Wars or the comic book films. It's just, I didn't grow up watching those movies. Um, but I hope that people that do love all those mainstream movies, will try out some of these indies because they might discover a new favorite that they wouldn't have known about otherwise. And, and with that in mind, um, maybe you can give us a little taste of what you're looking forward to in 2018. Maybe there's some names there that we haven't heard of and you could just uh, give us a couple minutes about that list, maybe a couple of the, not just movies, but the things that you're looking forward to in cinema for the next year. Yeah, so I don't have a huge list right now. I'm still putting it together. But, of course, coming up really, really soon is Sundance. Um, and like I said, seeing Call Me By Your Name there last year has continued my love for it this year. But there are quite a few films there that I can't wait to see. A lot of films at Sundance this year are obviously talking about the political situation that we're in right now. Um, there is a documentary about female filmmakers that, of course, I will be waiting to see because uh, that's a cause near and dear to my heart, talking about how we haven't, uh, you know, reached near, nearly reached parity for female directors yet. It's still overwhelmingly male directors in American movies and pretty much around the world. Um, there's also a documentary called Generation Wealth, which is all about the the sort of Instagram uh, wealthy culture of America, the unattainable wealth. That sounds really interesting. Um, Paul Dano is directing his first film. It's called Wildlife and it's going to be at Sundance and it stars future husband Jake Gyllenhaal. So I can't wait to 
to see that one. Um, and then in terms of the bigger films, something I'm really looking forward to is Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, this is a, a bigger movie than I usually go to see, but she has such a unique vision. Number one, you know, she's shown with Selma and with the 13th that she has such skill in filmmaking and I want to see what she can do with a big budget. You know, she set records with this film of being the first African-American, the first woman of colour female director to get that level of budget. And, I mean, it's taken so long for that to happen, but I'm really glad that she gets that opportunity because she will no doubt uh, be able to show show her stuff and, and prove, like Patty Jenkins did, just how powerful it can be when female directors get a chance to direct these mainstream movies. And that one stars, of course, Oprah Winfrey and uh, Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Kaling. It's such a wonderful, diverse cast. So uh, those are some things I am looking forward to and I can't wait to just be surprised by all the films I see at film festivals. I think most of the movies on my top ten list weren't even on my anticipated list uh, this time last year because I had no idea they were coming and they came out of nowhere and really surprised me. I, I was going to mention that. I feel like that's probably par for the course when you are going to festivals. You just get blindsided by great films all the time. Mm-hmm. To sort of piggyback onto your comments about female-led films on the director's side, I've also noticed from my perspective, it seems like 2018 has just a a really rich year for females in front of the camera with Ocean's 8 and with uh, Annihilation coming out soon and, of course, Wrinkle in Time. Like, there just seems to be a lot of really, really deeply excitable movies coming out that have a lot of women on screen, not just one woman in a group of men, but, like, female-led movies. Exactly. I mean, Annihilation is one I'm really looking forward to. Alex Garland, of course, with Ex Machina, who that was such a great film. And then this one, I, I love the fact that leading the mission are female scientists but they purposely say we're not female scientists we're scientists and again it's a diverse cast and it's so important I think people underestimate the power of representation but when you don't see yourself reflected on the big screen or when you see yourself reflected in not a positive way whether it's objectified or reduced to a stereotype it can be really damaging. And I was surprised at how emotional I got watching Wonder Woman because, and it's actually on on my top like 50 list of movies last year. And that, like I said, I didn't grow up reading comic books. It's not usually the material I gravitate to, but seeing her walk slow motion across that battlefield, empowered. And yes, she wears a short skirt and a tiny uniform, but she is strong and she wasn't objectified. Um, That gave me chills and brought tears to my eyes and I felt like I could take on the world. So it is really important to have more women in front of camera and shown in positive ways. I don't think the gender swapping of movies like Ocean's 8 is necessarily the answer, but I think it's definitely a step. And how great will it be to see Kate Blanchett, Rihanna, um, Sandra Bullock in a heist movie. I think that's wonderful. Well, um, thank you again for telling us all of your favorites and your most anticipated, Alicia. I'm really glad we could have you on, and I look forward to hearing everything about uh, your favorites from this year as well. And I'll see you at Sundance. I'll be there. Uh, and I'll be in Cannes as well, so um, we'll be able to uh, discuss everything we see at these festivals and more. So thank you again for having 
um, the time to come talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your support. I look forward to seeing you at Sundance, Alex, and so nice to meet you, Mike, over the podcast. I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. And um, and yeah, and you have your, your podcast and your book if you want to mention them again, and we'll we'll include them in the show notes too. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the Filmstruck podcast, you can hear wherever you get your podcasts. That's where I sit down with filmmakers and artists uh, working on some of the most interesting films out today, and we talk about their filmographies as well. And then my book is called Backwards and in Heels, and it's about the history of women in film, women in Hollywood, and I'm actually right now doing some updates because obviously a lot has happened since I put my book out in August of 2017. Um, I'm doing updates for a hardcover version that will be out next year. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Oh, thanks, guys. That was Alicia with her favorite films from 2017. And with that, we wrap up this episode of The First Word. And we look forward to chatting again on our next episode coming up soon. Yeah, have fun at Sundance. Thanks, man.